About 15 years ago, Rick and I had the privilege of being asked to come to a church in London. Uh, it was a great evangelical Anglican church and we were doing some leadership um, training with that group. And um, the pastor was Anthony Delaney. We came home and about uh, two or three years later, Anthony contacted us and said, look, I've got this great young couple in my church who are coming across to Australia. They just wanna check out the Australian church and have a holiday. And uh, we, we put them up for about two weeks and we absolutely fell in love with them. So we rang Anthony and said, Anthony, can we keep them please? And he said, no, don't you dare, you send them home or else. So, cause he had plans for them. Uh, um, Pete and Lauren were in the process of uh, planting a church in Manchester. So we watched uh, with almost, um, parental pride on Facebook as we watched Pete and Lauren plant a church in Manchester and uh, saw all of the, the fun and the, the stresses that, that go with that life. But um, there's something about Australia which keeps calling them back and we're so thrilled that when they said they were coming back to stay for a couple of months. Now, I think they came back because the weather's so great. Today is like a sunny summer's day in Manchester, you know. So... Um, uh, and I said to Pete, when I, um, would, would he like to, to uh, preach while he's here? Because I know he has a real heart for, for opening up the Word of God. And uh, we heard him this morning in the first service and were really blessed by it. So uh, Pete Dawson is a young church planter from Manchester. So how about we give him a good Aussie welcome? Thank you, Marcy. That was a pretty good accent as well. Um, someone, someone at the first service was a little disappointed that I didn't really have much of a Manchester accent, but hey-ho. Um, guys, it's great to be with you. Um, it's just such a privilege to be able to get a share with you. And I want to say a massive thanks to Rick and Marcy. They're kind of really encouragers. I'm sure you guys know that already. Uh, and I said this at the first service as well, but um, the past few years through the pandemic has been difficult for everyone in every sphere. But uh, having been in ministry myself, know how demanding and grueling it has been. And the fact that um, I mean, we came last week to the baptisms and the fact that you're just celebrating new life and all that God's doing and you had a full church. It was so great. Also testament to great leaders. And I just want to encourage you guys, pray for your leaders. These guys are amazing. Like the hospitality, their welcome, their encouragement. Please pray for your leaders because it's been a tough season. And, um, but uh, I'm excited to hear and see what God's doing as you guys have come out of that. Um, so you guys have been in a series recently that you've been calling... Um, let your yes be yes, which are based on some words of Jesus in Matthew 5. And just looking at what does it mean to be a person who walks with integrity. And so we're going to be continuing that this morning. But before we dive in, um, let me pray for us. So I want just for a moment to still your heart, close your eyes. And um, if you're comfortable, I want you to put your hand on your heart. It's just like an outward sign of what you want God to do as an inward reality. And Holy Spirit, we just want to welcome you afresh. Whatever's gone on in the week, God, you care about it and we don't do away with that, God. We just want to focus in on this moment. We give you permission to move us, to speak to us. So would you give us ears to hear what you're saying, eyes to see what you're doing in the places where you've put us. Father, we want to be those who live in faithful obedience to everything that you've called um, us to so we may step into the fullness of life that you've won for us. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. I want to start with a story. Um, so in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this young Silicon Valley entrepreneur who believed he had an amazing idea that would change the world as we know it and revolutionize home computing. And he was so assured of his idea that it would fly. But what he thought he needed was to someone to take his kind of small, relatively new startup company and take it to new heights. Now, he had his eyes set on a guy called John Scully, who back in the 80s was the CEO of PepsiCo, you know, the, the drink company. And back then, he'd taken them from being this very middle-of-the-road, mediocre brand to this global superpower that back in the 80s rivaled the likes of people like um, Coca-Cola. And so, this young entrepreneur, he was so sure of his idea that he had the audacity to approach John Scully and said, hey John, I've got this idea, would you come and leave your high-flying job and join me in my garage? And no surprise, John Scully said thanks, but no thanks. But apparently the story goes that he was persistent in asking, and in one last-ditch attempt to get John Scully on side, he approached him and he said these words to him, he said, John, are you happy selling sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? And with that, John Scully left his high-flying job and the prestige and the salary to boot at Pepsi. He joined this small company called Apple. Uh, the entrepreneur was Steve Jobs, and the rest, they say, is history. And the reason why I tell that story is because there's something in our humanity that longs for our, our lives to carry some sort of meaning and purpose. I want my life to count and have an impact on the world. And do you know what? The joy of following Jesus is this, that he's not only saved us from something, which is a joy in itself, he's also saved us for something. And he has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for each and every one of you in the places where he's put you, whether the workplace, school, in your family, in your community, on your street, wherever it is. And his purpose is this that he wants you to be a part of co-laboring, of working with him to transform the world that is into the kind of world that he intended it to be. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And I think, man, what greater purpose is there uh, than that? But the thing is, and here's the thing, I believe that our ability to step into the fullness of God's purposes for your life are not primarily determined by the things that you do, but are a direct result of the person that you're becoming. And I wonder, who are you becoming? Like, who are you in the very centre of your being? In, in Proverbs 4.23, the writer says this. He says, above all else, guard your heart. Now, for us in kind of modern Western kind of uh, um, culture, we see the heart as the place of emotion, which it is kind of. But the writers of the Bible, when they talked about the heart, it was more than that. It was the very centre of your being. It was the it was who you are. It was the, the place that was the seat of your loyalty. It was, it was the place from which you make sense of the world and how you make your decisions of what to do. And so the guy writes this in Proverbs. He says, above all else, guard your heart because everything that you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. And I believe if we want to be a people who uh, walk and follow Jesus with integrity, we need to allow God to do in us what we desire him to do through us. Because everything flows from that inner place, the center of your being. And I think um, integrity of action starts with integrity of heart. But there's a but. I think the biggest obstacle or issue that stops us living out lives of integrity is this. I believe it's pride. Pride. And pride is one of those character traits that God challenges and speaks out most strongly about more than most of the things in the Bible. And he says it clear as day. There's a verse in Proverbs 8.13. God says it like this. He says, 
I hate pride and arrogance. You can't get any clearer. But hear me out. I don't think there's anything wrong with being full of pride for someone else or to champion someone else or even to have a sense of, I've worked hard for this. I'm really proud of what I've done. I don't think that's what God's saying. But when the Bible talks about pride, it's all about the exaltation and the elevation of self. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And I believe at its heart, when you look through the scriptures, that ultimately pride is like, it's it's self-worship. It's the worship of self. It's exchanging that place in your inner being, in your heart that God should take and you replace it with ourselves. And you know, the reason I think that God hates pride so much, of course he wants you to be like pleased and happy with your achievements of course he does but the reason why he hates pride so much is it's because actually it's the root of sin you know the word sin literally means to miss the mark to fall short of how God would have us live and in Psalm 10 4, the psalmist writes in his pride the wicked man does not seek the Lord in all his thoughts there is no room for God And if you go right back to the book of Genesis, it simply means the book of beginnings. And we read about how sin entered the world. You know the story of Adam and Eve when they ate the apple uh, from the tree? It was actually pride that led to their belief. We can decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad. I'm not going to choose to listen to God. I'm going to listen and believe my own truth. That change of mindset is a sign that pride has taken root. To believe we know better than God does. And of course, in the story, we see the uncomfortable reality of the consequences when we let pride take a hold and sin uh, comes into the world. And today's passage that we're going to dive into serves as a bit of a stark reminder of that. But I say that, but there's also good news because the truth is with Jesus, there's hope, there's redemption, there's freedom for everyone. And we're going we're gonna to touch on that in the moment. Um, so I know for the last few weeks when you've been in this series, you've been in the book of Daniel, which is just a beautiful, example of a guy along with his three mates who walk with integrity in a society and a culture that demands compromise and you know what that story may have been written about 2,000 years ago but the same demand for compromise is so prevalent for followers of Jesus and so um, before we open up Daniel chapter 5 I want to read the final parting words of Daniel chapter 4 and we read this Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the guy that took Daniel in the fiery furnace, that guy, he says this, "Um, I praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Q chapter five, read this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold uh, and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, he was a busy man, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. And as they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, and wood and stone. Now, when we start chapter five, about 20 years has passed from the end of chapter four. And so Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king we read about in some of the biggest stories at the beginning of Daniel, the fiery furnace, he's passed away and his grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. 
And I think it'd be a fair question to ask. Has this new young guy learned anything from his predecessor, especially in light of his parting words about God being able to humble the proud? And quite quickly we learned, nope, no he's not. And so um, I want to kind of unpack this scene a little bit. So the scene starts with King Belshazzar throwing this crazy party for his wives, his concubines, his nobles and all that and imagine the wine was flowing it doesn't say it. imagine a harp was playing and something like that was going on and I think this scene isn't particularly unusual there's nothing unusual about a rich king throwing on a lavish party to kind of demonstrate his greatness and his wealth and his power but what the biblical story doesn't tell you but the history books do and I love this because history and the bible they're the same thing they just interweave but what history books tell you is while Belshazzar is living up throwing this lavish party his kind of sworn enemies are gathering at the gates this huge army of Medes and Persians start to lay siege to the city of of Babylon and the funny thing is Belshazzar knows this He knows this, and yet he's sitting pretty in his palace, throwing this decadent party, because at the end of the day for him, this is Babylon. This is Babylon. This is the greatest city in the greatest empire of the ancient world of that time. I mean, the city was impenetrable, so he believed. Um, Historians say that the city of Babylon was so vast that the walls were so thick, they used to race chariots side by side along the walls. And here is Belshazzar. He's so assured of his empire, of the greatness of his city, of his power, of his dominance, of his military might, and all of that, that he has the audacity to sit and party while the enemy laid seed to the city just outside. And I think, how arrogant can you get? I mean, I'm trying to imagine the equivalent today of one country invading another, said, no, we're just going to sit and party while you, you did. You just wouldn't do that. And anyway, on top of that, Belshazzar makes this request. He say, um, bring me the cups that have been taken from the temple in Jerusalem that were used for the worship of Yahweh, the one true God that we worship. And he requests that they be brought to him so his guests could drink out of them. And it says they made toast to all these other gods of bronze, gold, silver, iron, wood, stone, and all the rest of it. And I just think if ever there was an act of like complete contempt for God or display of pride and arrogance in your own power of being self-absorbed, then this was it, right? I mean, Belshazzar Balthazar takes the things that were made for the worship of God and instead uses them to worship these materialistic other gods that they start to worship. And do you know what? When I, uh, when I first read this, I think, I mean, how archaic can you get? Like worshipping these materialistic gods, how old-fashioned. But you know what? Culture might have changed, but the human condition doesn't. We have a default and we might know these gods by other names. It might be Apple, Amazon, um, here in Melbourne, it might be the Chad's Stone Shopping Centre. Do you know what I mean? Um, I need to visit there. But whether it's materialistic things, whether it's image, whether it's status, whether it's craving recognition or it's something else, pride takes root in us when we begin to pursue and exalt anything else other than God. Anything else that takes the place that God so desires as first at the centre of your being, of who you are. And do you know what? Pride creeps in ever so slow that we don't often notice it. The famous writer C.S. Lewis, the Narnia guy, and he wrote some beautiful books. He wrote this. He said, There is one vice of which no person in the world is free. There is no fault at which we are more unconscious of in ourselves 
unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And I just wonder, I'm not particularly the most self-aware person at all times. I wonder how good are we, good are we at spotting pride in ourselves? Um, I got a list of things I thought, oh, I could maybe mark myself against this and just kind of, it's a good sort of way to reflect. And this is not an exhaustive list, but um, here are a few. Um, pride is self-dependence. Pride craves success and recognition whereby we'll give ourselves the credit for something that God has ultimately accomplished. Pride craves control. Pride keeps us from celebrating the successes of others. Pride keeps us from initiating an apology even when we know we're wrong. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> so bad. Um, pride is when we elevate ourselves above others. Pride makes us defensive. Definitely guilty of that. Um, anyone hear that and go, no, I'm not the irony um, pride constantly seeks the approval of others pride is to experience God's provision and yet live selfishly without generosity and that's one reason we ask people to give right first of all um, because God is generous in his character he's generous but also is a sign that I'm not pride I don't hold the things that are most important to the world to myself I want to release them back to God um, but pride prioritizes your own pleasure over obedience to Jesus I mean how prevalent is that in our society if it feels good do it if it's not hurting anyone do it um, but that's pride taking root pride is when you need the final word Guilty. Um, pride is concerned with self. And you know what? It's the antithesis of humility, of how Jesus would have us live. And you know what? I think it's right at the heart of stopping us live with integrity. Um, I mean, just think about the world for a minute and all the issues we see and conflict and selfishness and, and unforgiveness and um, oh, all the issues of the world, they start because it's an issue of pride going on in the heart that causes people to live for themselves rather than the one who made them. So back to the passage. So imagine the wine's flowing, the music's playing, um, and all of a sudden this party comes to an abrupt halt. And we read this in verse 5, and I want you to try and picture this. Um, suddenly it says, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. I mean, this is freaky stuff. If you watch Stranger Things, you think, yeah, this is something out of an episode of Stranger Things. This is weird. And I think if I saw a hand appear and start writing on the wall, I would be freaking out. And this is exactly what the king does. Um, the king, we read this. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. It's kind of like this Scooby-Doo moment for the king. He's, he's genuinely terrified. It's like change your pants time for Belshazzar. Like he was genuinely terrified for his life. And so his response is this. He summons enchanters, astrologers and all the wise men of Babylon to try and interpret this weird, crazy, scary writing that's appearing on the walls. And you know what? The irony is that the people he relies on to interpret what is needed in the moment they all fail him and so it's eventually the queen's mother um, the king queen's mother the king's mother pipes up and says this in verse 11 there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him in the meantime your father 
Oh, sorry. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. And this is Daniel's moment. In walks Daniel. And I love this because Belshazzar, the king, who has shown such contempt for God and instead has trusted a whole bunch of trusts a whole bunch of other gods. And who has always relied on his own power, of his military might, of his success, and all the rest of it. He eventually comes to the end of himself because none of this stuff he's trusted for his whole life makes any difference when he actually needs it. And yet here is Daniel, the guy who for the past 20 years, he's been forgotten despite the fact that he escaped the fiery furnace and was basically one of the chief in command over Babylon and who had all the wisdom and could interpret dreams. He's been forgotten about. And yet when all of the powers and systems and wisdoms fail, they remember him. They go, oh yeah, remember Daniel. Remember what he did. And he is known for his insight. He's known for his integrity because, because this is what sets the people of God apart. It's their integrity to follow the way of Jesus faithfully. And I wish I had more time to go into it, but I'll just say this, that when we live faithfully to the way of Jesus and how he would have us live, it will cause trials and persecutions. Like the Bible doesn't shy away from that. If you're faithful to Jesus, he says this, in this life, you will have trouble. And in the same breath, he says, take heart for I've overcome the world. But the reality remains, if you live faithful for Jesus, you're going to encounter heartache and hardship. Some people might not like you. They might not like what you have to say or like the way that you live. Um, But at some point, it will cause people maybe to reject you. But sooner or later, I believe the power of God seen in people who walk faithfully to the way of Jesus will be seen as a light in the darkness. And, And no matter what opposition you face, let me say this, never underestimate a godly life. Never underestimate the power of a life lived in obedience to Jesus. You know, you might not be invited to the world's parties, uh, but when the world gets desperate, uh, when earthly powers and wisdoms fail, and they have failed, they will fail, and they will always continue to fail, people like Belshazzar will look and take notice of faithful women, men and women who know the Lord, and through life lived with integrity to his ways they will see the power and the love of God demonstrated in your life and church the world needs people like this your workplace your family your schools your community need people of integrity not who are better than other people but who set themselves humbly apart to follow Jesus the best they can so that people not that they'll see you but they'll see Jesus in you they'll see his love and wisdom and power and There's power and transformation in that. And we need more Daniels. We need more people like that. And so in comes Daniel into the story. And it's no longer like a sprightly young man, as we read about in the beginning. He's pretty advanced in years, but he's still faithfully serving the Lord. And he says this to Belshazzar. He says, verse 23, You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, wives, concubines, you drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. In other words, all the stuff that you trust in, it makes no difference when push comes to shove. But instead he says this, you didn't honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And I love that. For me, it's the overarching theme of Daniel that it is God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. It's God that sees all, that knows all, that is Lord of all. And yet to be proud is to live as the opposite is true. To, to let pride take root means that we take control. We know what's best. 
But Daniel has these words for Belshazzar. He says, therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And the inscription that was written is this. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Excuse the uh, um, pronunciation. But um, here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting Passing, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, these words that were written on the wall, they're pronouncing judgment on King Belshazzar in this moment. And the judgment is bleak. The words are saying, you know, Belshazzar, there are consequences for the way you've been living. And I'm afraid, mate, they're not good. It is not going to end well for you. And true to God's word in verse 30, we read, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. It didn't end well for him. But here's this word, this is the word judgment, and it's a word that kind of, I often flinch at the word judgment, because it's to be accused of something. And the reality for Belshazzar is this, because ultimately God, who made all, who sees all, and who knows all, he's judge of all, right? He created it and he made all and he sees it all. He's the one who can judge. I imagine it like this. Um, imagine if someone could collect all your secret thoughts and I mean absolutely everything, nothing shared, like spared. And, and then we got to project them up here on the screens for everyone in the room to see. And I think if you did that with me, all my secret thoughts and put them up there, uh, we'd never be friends again. You, I'd be out the door. And I can imagine people knowing the most broken parts of you, the things that you think that no one else knows that you think, and they're displayed for everyone to see. And the truth is this, God sees it all anyway. He knows all of that stuff. And... um, You can't hide anything from him. I try and make this mistake time and time again, I think that the way I live can cover up for actually the condition of my heart. No matter what projection of yourself you present at school, at work, at church, within your family, God sees it all anyway. And the truth and the uncomfortable truth is this, that the writing is on the wall for all of us. In other words, God's judgment will fall on those whose Pride causes them to miss the mark of God's standard. In other words, as the Bible says, to to, to sin. And you know what? I think it's important that we know the truth of how God sees our sin. We need to take sin seriously. Now, I'm not a doom and gloom, judgmental, point in the finger preacher. That's not what I want to do. But the Bible says the truth about your sin, that the consequences for your sin is death. And you might think, whoa, Pete, this is a bit heavy, feeling a little bit guilty and feeling a little bit of shame. I'm not here to condemn anyone, but I believe this, that it's not until you fully understand the weight of the problem that we call sin, the brokenness and the disconnect and the conflict that it causes, it's not until you understand fully the weight of that that you fully appreciate the solution we have in Jesus. It's not until we fully understand the weight of the problem that we fully appreciate the solution we find in Jesus. Yes, the writing is on the wall for you and me. There is a sense of judgment, but guys, there's good news uh, that God, and this might be 101 basic Christianity, but stay tuned because God loved you so much that he says, I don't want you to have to live under the shame and the weight and the consequences of the way that you act because pride has taken a root of your heart. And so instead, he sent his son Jesus 
who lived a life without falling short, who, who's not standing under judgment. And instead of us taking the punishment and living with that weight, instead Jesus took it all on himself so we could live free and not know the penalty and the shame of what it is to, to live with sin. And with arms stretched wide, he was nailed to a cross and he died a criminal's death. He died, shame, he died shamefully. People were mocking him. They were mocking him and we should have deserved that mocking we should have deserved that punishment yeah he took it all and he took it to the grave but the good news of the gospel isn't that the good news is that he rose again and that he rose to new life so that you and I could have new life in him and with him ultimately the blood of Jesus has washed away the writing on the wall for all of us I'd love to invite the band up in a moment. We're going to respond. Paul writes on my favorite, I think it's Paul, writes in Romans um, 8.1. He says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, no pointing finger, no way of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on, that's good news, right? I mean, just imagine every broken, messed up relationship, every bad decision you've made that someone can go, don't matter, mate. It's been sorted. Like the, the turmoil that we go to try and fix broken relationships and the good news of Jesus is I've taken all that. Like if you want right relationship with me, there's, there's no amount of works that you can do to make this right. I've done all the works that are needed. You've just got to choose to trust me and follow me and believe in what I've done for you. That is the good news of the gospel. And if you're anything like me, it's a gift that I need to receive every single day. But you know what? So often in, in my pride, um, it can keep me from the very thing that I need the most. In, in my pride, I forget to recognize my need of God. Like I'm, I mess up so much every single day and the small things and the big things as well. I think, oh, done it again I've done it again and there's this weight of oh Pete you're a terrible person and God says no let me take it let me take it but in my pride I go nope I'm going to take control I'm going to fix it myself it never works it never works but also in my pride I can let the good news I mean how many of us have heard the gospel story before Jesus died we've heard it we've heard it and it can become like water off a duck's back many times but in my pride sometimes in our pride we can let the good news become old news when it is in fact the best news we can let the good news become old news when it is in fact the best news I know the gospel. I know it. I've known it since I was a child. I was fortunate enough to be brought up in a Christian home. My parents would tell me about what Jesus has done and I know it, but it's another thing to live in the reality of it every single day when I don't have to live as a slave to the feelings of shame and the weight and the conflict and all that comes with us missing the mark because of pride. I get a fresh start. But do I do it every day? No, I don't. It's Christianity 101. Jesus died so that we could live. I mean, how do you deal with pride? If, if, if pride's the root cause of, all, cause of all this, how do we deal with it? The word Jesus would use and the Bible uses this word repent. And on repent, and like if you heard the word repent, some people go, oh, it's another accusing word. Like some people can point the finger, repent. You're a sinner, repent. That's not what the word repent is. It's not an accusation of judgment. The word repent is an invitation to freedom in Jesus. 
The, literally the word repent means to change your mind, to, to, um, to turn towards one translation is to change your direction. And imagine if life could be that easy in relationships. I've messed up. Oh, I'm just going to change the direction. It's that easy with Jesus because we were singing about his grace earlier on. Because he's gracious, I can turn towards, I can realign and I can say, God, actually, I desire you to do things in and through my life, but until you've done it in me, that won't happen. But we have the freedom and the choice every moment of every day to say, God, I realign, I repent, I, I turn towards. And so I'd love to give us just a real opportunity and I'd love to invite you if you're able to stand. That's gonna give us a few moments just to search our own hearts and maybe you recognize straight away, oh, I recognize pride has a root, like has a hold on me in that way or there's an area of my life that I just don't want to relinquish control. The root cause of all that is pride. Maybe just close your eyes for a moment just to kind of get rid of the distraction. And I just want to offer the invitation that Jesus does to, to repent. And that's not, I'm not pointing a finger to say, you must repent. I'm saying there's an invitation of Jesus. He said, if you want to realign, if you want me to do stuff through you, the plans and purposes that I've called you to, then I want to do it in you first. And so I say for myself, God, I'm sorry that I've let the good news become old news. God, would you let it become the best news? And I want to root myself right now and in this moment turn towards to face you, to change my direction, to instead of me being on the throne of my heart, to replace that with you. And it's free and it's available. And maybe you just want it in, in the quietness of your own heart. Just maybe the specific things that you go, oh, I recognize that in my life. Just say, God, I'm sorry, and, and name that thing. There's something real powerful in just naming it before the Lord and say, God, I name that, but I change my direction. I turn towards. And even just say to Him, God, I give you permission to move in my life. Would you shine a light in my heart of those areas? And I, I surrender them. I give them back to you. It's just one specific group of people I love to pray for and I prayed it over myself in the first service and it's for people that have heard the gospel time and time again. Jesus died so I could live and have a fresh start of forgiveness and it has become like this old news. Guys, this is the best news. If you look at every follower of Jesus who has had an impact on the world, the reason they had an impact wasn't because of what they did, it was because of who they were in the core of their being. And right at the center of their heart and who they were was an incredible passion for Jesus because they knew the reality of what he's done, of what he's given for you, of he's made a way for you. He's called you to a plans and a purpose. He says, I don't care about what you've done. I don't care the ways that you've messed up. I don't care about the weights that you carry and the things that you may have done. And I don't care about any of that. I want to give you a chance for a fresh start, guys. That is good news. That should what should motivate us to want to go and tell the world about it, to be a better neighbor, to live lives of integrity. And if it's become old news for you, why don't you just give God permission in this moment to say, Holy Spirit, reveal it afresh. What you've done, it's the reason why we're here. We're not here because we're striving the best in our own strength to do and make a difference in the world. We're here because Jesus has already done it. And if we're not excited by that, then change won't come and we, we, 
we'll forfeit the best that God wants to do in our lives. And so God, I say again, just reveal it afresh, who you are, what you've done, what you've given. I don't want it to become old news anymore, God. Help me return to that first love where I first encountered you and realized what you've done and what you've given. move Jesus we invite you we give you permission we love you Lord